The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, Glory, uh, it's good to be back with you again this month. This is Dudley. I'm looking forward to our study this time. Hey, uh, I've been really blessed recently to hear that several of you are, have been using the little book, Follow Me, as a tool to engage those in your sphere of influence with a discussion about what the gospel, what salvation really is. There are hundreds, even hundreds of thousands of people out there who would love for somebody to care enough to just offer to talk about the important things of life and death, future, and hope. This little book was designed to help you do exactly that. You could simply ask someone if they'd be willing to meet with you for 45 minutes per session for five or six sessions to have coffee or lunch or whatever, and use this little book as a study guide for the two of you. I believe it will be greatly helpful. So could I encourage you to get a hold of that and use that book? Order several, call the office and get it. And as we approach Christmas, don't forget the little book that you could give to all your kids and grandkids and neighbors' kids and whatever called Shorty, the Substitute Ram. It's a children's book, and it's the gospel told from the point of view of the ram that was caught in the thicket on top of the mountain when Abraham and Isaac went to sacrifice. So, get that. Hey, this month, oh, yeah, let me just say a word of thank you to those of you who remember. Kerygma Ventures in your giving. This is a good time to do that. I, I really thank you for doing it and encourage you. If you haven't done it, to do it, you'll be blessed. You can't make a better investment than to invest in the one message that cannot be stopped and will not be stopped and is transforming lives. So please consider making a generous investment with us and uh, do it now. You can uh, call the office and uh, get that done. Okay, uh, this month I want to talk to you about something that's uh, that's really been bugging me, and I, I think uh, God is helping me and and to get a, a hold of it. And I I, I just I, I want to just lay it out for you, and then let's talk about it. Okay, I, I was watching a debate. It, it wasn't the the one that was on television between the. Uh, Republican candidates, but it could have been. But the debate was hijacked by rage. Uh, in fact, most of the discussions and confrontations I hear today are. It, it doesn't matter if the issue is political, geological, theological, ideological, economic, whatever. It seems that the participants get armed with zingers for each other rather than research facts that can be discussed with everybody being helped. Winners are chosen based on who got in the best zingers. And of course, the losers are always those who were hoping they would gain some insight from the discussion of the issues. It seems that our whole society has is becoming increasingly vitriolic. Instead of listening and responding, we resort to talking over each other and demonizing our opponents. This is true whether 
you know, you're reading some discussion on Facebook or one of the social media sites, or you're watching a newscast where there's a panel of people discussing stuff and and uh, you can't understand any of them because they're all talking over each other. Or, or even it's on the sports cast where they're talking about something as ridiculous as which team might have the best quarterback and they're screaming over each other, talking over each other, everybody trying to get their point made and put the other person down. It's, uh, I suppose we, we shouldn't expect any better in a culture that denies the possibility of spiritual warfare and thereby concludes that all conflicts are flesh and blood conflicts. If, if that's true, then, then obviously people are your enemies. So when you're living in a culture where demons and angels and God are mocked as primitive myths, we shouldn't expect people to understand that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and high places. And so, you know, we're, we're left fighting each other and uh, the culture suffers. Add to that the, the human proclivity toward envy and we see class warfare as, as growing, as inevitable. Politicians and, and others skillfully use envy to gain a following by suggesting that another segment of society is being benefited more than they and that one bunch is favored and another bunch is disrespected. And, and we successfully divide the country between men and women, black and white, rich and poor, minorities versus police Conservatives versus liberal, us versus them, 1% against 99%, whatever. And so we basically have a culture that is at war with itself. The church should be different. The community of faith should not, should not buy into that. After all, we believe in spiritual reality. We, be, we believe that we don't fight flesh and blood, but but spiritual powers emanating from the devil himself. And yet, we in the church rage. We try to fight like the devil, and in doing so, we yield to him. It's a cartoonish picture, though sad, that Christians are fighting like the devil to please God. The church representing the kingdom of God is to to be the salt and the light of a society, but when but it, when it becomes the voice of the shifting culture rather than a voice to the culture, the whole society begins to rot in egoism and grope in darkness. There was a time when our culture reflected the gospel of the kingdom, the, more of the values of the gospel of the kingdom than it does now. As we go back in history, we we discover that the message of God's kingdom had been recovered to a great degree in the Great Reformation of the 16th, 17th centuries, and whole countries had been affected by that, and people from those European countries that who, whose values had been uh, had been impacted by the implications of this Christ-centered, cross-centered message came to the shores of America. 
and the foundation of the American colonies was greatly influenced by those who had been influenced by this recovery. This nation in its founding and in its early days was blessed to have been founded on many of the values inherent within a worldview produced by gospel-marinated thought. But the message that produced such implications slowly became mixed with man-centered culture and lost its ability to offer hope to all. The American dream displaced the heavenly vision. There's a psalm that is often quoted in the New Testament, uh, I think like 32 times, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but it's it's the second psalm. If you have a uh, copy of the scriptures there, t- turn with me over to it. The second psalm says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What a difference in the perspective of the nations and the king. Uh, the nations rage because they're insecure. Uh, they're afraid. They're threatened. They know that they're vulnerable to a larger nation or stronger powers or unpredictable circumstances. But not so with the Lord. He, he sits in the heavens and he can laugh at the comedic behavior of nations and the people who have made the nations their identity and their security. The ultimate king is sitting on the one throne that controls everything on earth. Now, for Christians, for those of us in the community of faith, this is fabulous news. We are in Christ, and he's already seated at the right hand of the Father's king over all that's his. Why why do we act like the devil in our confrontation with our culture? Why do we rage? Perhaps we've not been told. More likely, we've bought the perspective of culture rather than the perspective of the kingdom of God. We've been culturized. We have a Christian culture, but it's more culture than Christian. The, the cultural Christianity that has evolved in the last century is more like, oh, an American civil religion than it is the kingdom of God. We'll talk about a few common words that that's used that might give you a, some clue as to the difference in the way the culture defines things and the way the kingdom does. Let's take that important word, freedom. It's a big word. It was for freedom that Christ set you free, the scriptures tell us. The culture, our culture, even our culture, defines it in terms of being free from political and moral restraints. Morality is determined by the desires of the individual rather than the good of the community or the design of creation. Sexuality is discussed under this freedom. Sexuality is now divorced from marriage, from commitment, from reproductions. You can have sex without children. You can have children without sex. You can have sex without marriage, 
without commitment. And, and so who's, who's to tell you that it needs to be under any kind of restraint or guideline? Divorce in our culture is now hailed as a solution to conflict. And more recently, same-sex marriage is declared, is declared not only legal, but normal. Abortion is accepted as legal. It's a legal option because we've stood by as the freedom to choose has triumphed over the freedom to live. Sadly, the Christian community has been too busy trying to establish a large footprint in the community in terms of church buildings and institutions and gathering large numbers of listeners on TV and social media while the culture stole not only the word liberty, but liberty itself. You should notice that the kingdom of God describes liberty as the freedom to live as God designed us to live, reflecting the love of God and blessing the world around us with truth. It's not so much a freedom from, though there is freedom from, freedom from the slavery of Satan, freedom from the deception of the liar, but it's a freedom to, it's, it's a freedom to live the way we were designed to live. Equality is another big word in our culture, in our day. The culture focuses on economic and political equality. When some have more stuff than others, political equality demands that we should, that it should be redistributed. Of course, by the government. The kingdom of God features the equal, features equality, but it's the equality of dignity as granted by God alone. The big and powerful are not more important than the little and weak. In fact, in the kingdom culture, the least are exalted and the greatest are brought down. Real Christians who take seriously the culture of the kingdom of God are busy honoring those that secular society has discarded are deemed unimportant. The poor and victimized in the kingdom of God are seen as image bearers of God and vital. They're important to God and his eternal purpose, purposes. And there's indication in the scriptures that in the age to come, those who are overlooked now will be looking over things then. I suspect that much of the church's attitude here is a product of American culture more than it is the influence of the biblical witness. Yep, we've been infiltrated, culturized. There's injustice for the unborn. Just because the unborn can't fight back and demand its rights and march, it's considered unimportant. They, 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 no justice there. Big discussion today about immigration. Of course, there needs to be a discussion about what, what can be done for, for the good of the country and countries, but the immigrants should not, be, should not be treated as less than. After all, we are all immigrants here. We are we're living in a foreign land, having our citizenship in heaven. The poor, the disabled, the mentally sick, sometimes even the physically sick are considered the least of these and, and considered not powerful, not influential, not worth the time. 
It's another word. Unity is tossed around a lot, and has, it's it's sought and desired as a legitimate objective. But but our society seeks unity through sameness, as it downplays the distinctive nature of things like male and female. Real Christians who live from the perspective of Zion, where the king sits, knows that differences and distinctives are vital to real unity. It's when a husband fully embraces his maleness that he's a better husband. Same with a wife. When she embraces her femininity, she's a better wife. A husband's a better husband. Did I say that right? You got the point. Trying to be culturally relevant and trying to serve the cultural mandate to reach equality and unity through erasing differences, life has not only become boring, it's enormously confusing. People changing their sexes and changing their identities and all based on internal desires rather than the design that God has given to us. What about history? History is an important word. People keep trying to redefine it, come up with some definition of it. According to our culture, history is a collection of individual stories with none of them necessarily giving meaning to the others. Everybody has their own. Everyone is right, if that's what they really choose to believe. Different in the kingdom. Kingdom of God offers one big story that connects all stories in a narrative that gives eternal meaning to every person in every era of history. Uh, there will never be any real meaning until there's a return to the real story. Of course, power, the ability to get things done, is viewed in our culture and too much in the church as being in the majority with influence among the elites, holding wealth and enjoying some measure of fame. We look for those kinds of people to lead our corporations as well as our churches. But power, from Zion's perspective, is manifested in the Lamb who rules through love. The weak qualify for assistance from heaven, therefore they glorify God, which is the purpose, our purpose on earth anyway. The overlooked in the kingdom. From Zion's perspective, the overlooked are being watched over by the sitting king. Kingdom-oriented Christians are not quick to measure the winner on the basis of popularity. They are so sure of their outcome, they're willing to work and wait. Well, those are just a few of the phrases that I could pull out and show how our culture has influenced uh, the, the church, the community of faith, and therefore muted that voice to the culture, and uh, we're becoming more a religion of God and country than one of Christ as king. When that's true, the people will rage. They rage because they feel victimized by circumstances that they can't control. 
They rage because darkness seems so dense that they don't believe light could ever penetrate it. They rage because the opponent seems to be winning. They rage because they've lost a comfortable culture and aren't sure they can get it back. They rage because they have foolishly believed that the best they can hope for is the last-minute escape from this world. They feel like their time is short and something dramatic must take place. They promote and fall for apocalyptic panic attacks, trying to get followers pumped up to fight flesh-and-blood enemies. They gather into their ideological closets and rally the troops by emphasizing how badly they themselves are treated. They practice their talking points but refuse to think through real issues. They're vulnerable to those who lead with anger and communicate with rage. And when they find someone who can articulate their fears, they want to make him or her a savior. They long for a Goliath to join their team to fight the Goliath of the enemies. But there's no need to rage. No Goliath necessary. We have a David who has already faced the giant and won. As you'll remember the story, he severed his, the head of the giant from his body. And he empowered the before coward Israelites to rout the enemy. The enemy that now fears the king. It's the enemy who rages. It's his time that's short. It's true the cross looked like our defeat, but it's become our victory. It's true that death looked like the end, but it's become our beginning. We are citizens of an unshakable kingdom. Hebrews 12, the last part, verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. In other words, when we know that we are a part of an unshakable kingdom, we worship in light of that. We relate to God in light of that. We relate to, to earth in light of that. We relate to our enemies in light of that. We are, we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom. Why? There are several reasons I'll give you here. First of all, we rest on the inevitable success of God's imperishable word. Just like at creation when God spoke, his word, when it is released, it goes on for an eternity without stopping. When the message of the Son is proclaimed in word or deed, it causes ripples that continue to pound the shores of time until his rule is supreme. The word to us is not just some ideological thing. It is not just some Bible study. It is the, the living word of God. And it is, it is expressed by us when we proclaim, believe, and practice the gospel of the kingdom of God as described by Jesus. Secondly, we trust the finished work of Christ in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He has already done all that needs to be done to reconcile man to God and restore him to the elevated position of being God's partner on earth. Righteousness has been fulfilled. Sin 
has been forgiven. Death has been defeated. Satan has been exposed as a prosecutor without a case. The future is secure. The blessings of Christ's obedience has gone further, farther than the curse of Adam's disobedience. There's nothing left for us to do but to live out what God has put, put in us. There's a garden to tend and a world to bless because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Thirdly, we rejoice in the power of the gospel to transform. We realize that those who will, may lead in the next phase of God's program are probably pagans right now. They may be drunk or marching in some futile cause. They may be agnostic revelers like so many of the past who were converted and became champions of God's program. They may be religious zealots like Saul of Tarsus. But you see, the gospel changes people, really changes them from the inside out. There's nothing in any of us that death and resurrection can't change. Therefore, we can confront our opponents with kindness, as Paul instructed Timothy. They, like us, can be rescued from the deception of the enemy and regenerated by the same, by the same spirit that raised Jesus. I want to read for you that passage out of Timothy. It's worth taking the time to read. And here is what Paul says to Timothy. Paul is writing from prison. So he knows something about a culture that is contrary to the one that's in his heart. He's writing to Timothy in Ephesus, who's also in a culture that is contrary to the gospel. And yet here is his instructions to a citizen of the unshakable kingdom. And he is telling him, you don't have to rage. Here's how you respond. Here's how you worship God as a citizen of the unshakable kingdom. Second Timothy 2.24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We are to be kind. We are to confront, correct our enemies. Now, kindness is not all, doesn't always look like niceness. I think we have improperly defined it in terms of passivity and being nice and go along to get along. But that's not what he's talking about. Certainly it's not the way Paul did it. He confronted Peter when he was wrong. He confronted uh, many people in, in the various churches there because they were wrong. But he did not see them as his enemy. He, he was not looking for zingers to put him down. He was not looking for ways just to win the argument. He wanted to confront them with a truth that possibly God would take the blindfolders off their eyes so that they could see like he had. He had been blinded. He had been hard-hearted. And yet God had softened his heart and opened his eyes. And Paul is saying, hey, there's a bunch of them out there that are going to, that are going to be converted. And so we need to be kind in our approach. Though 
we don't have to be passive. So, so we rejoice in the power of the gospel to transform. Fourthly, we celebrate the ultimate success of the church. Jesus said the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The power of the message lived out in the community of faith cannot be stopped by any earthly or demonic power. We may not like the current structure of the churches in our culture, but his church is marching on. It is not slouching toward Gomorrah or fearful of Armageddon. He who is the head of the church, the body, is already seated on Zion, and the body lives from his power and direction. Fifthly, we laugh at the presumption of darkness. It cannot win. The promises of success and fulfillment made by alternative cultures will be unkept. Those promises will be unkept. Like the woman at the well in Samaria, those who depend on lies will end up with a thirsty soul. The only water that satisfies is that which flows from the throne upon which our king sits. We don't have to fear that the message being promoted by secular progressivism, by naturalism, by atheism, any of the other isms, we don't have to fear that they're going to win. It cannot win. They do not produce the satisfaction that the human soul longs for. There will be a time when, like the woman at the well, they will be open to hear somebody offer them a real drink of water. So, what are we supposed to do? Well, we can engage our opponents because we're not afraid. It's not we that are raging. The issues are too important to be overlooked in an, in an effort to win the argument. We can't be satisfied just to be quippier, cuter than the enemy. The, the issues are too great. The opponent is too important to be considered our enemy. He or she might just be the next voice declaring truth that sets a whole bunch of people free. So we not only can engage because we're not afraid, we must engage because we represent our God who loves all his creation and has paid a high price to redeem it. We, we can't, can't claim to be his representatives and following him, partnering with him if we don't care about the creation he's purchased. We shall engage because we believe the good news of Jesus' reign the kingdom of God will illuminate the darkened heart, soften the hardened heart, empower the timid soul, restore vital hope in the human heart. We are not making contingent plans to hide from trouble, escape from persecution, or compromise our belief. We're marching. We're marching from Calvary's victory toward Zion's glory. Our king sits on the highest throne. Why would we rage? Father, I pray that you let the truth of this word settle into our hearts. Let it encourage us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. 
You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www.kerygmaventures.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.